Well, there's the bell. Can you hear me on this mic right now? There's the bell. We're just going to start on time this week for a change. Um, yeah. The, uh, now, obviously, we have a lot to cover. So let's first, as always, begin in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for the gift of life and for the gift of salvation and for the gift of the Mass. We ask for your blessings upon all of us here that you may open our hearts and our minds to receive your word into our lives. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, I call you the remnant, but it's a pretty decent little turnout. Anyone new tonight? One, yeah, one, but he's visiting. Where are you coming from? Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale. So thank you, a visiting guest. Uh, yeah. So tonight, because we actually have the whole liturgy of the Eucharist to go through, uh, which is the most important part of the Mass, we'll go through it. But what I want to do, because it's our last time, is definitely open it up to more questions and answers, especially this last time, because I think a lot of you have questions and answers, and it's kind of a fun dialogue to go back and forth. A couple things I'd say, though. There's so many resources out there about the Mass um, where you can really kind of enter more deeply into it. One resource, this was actually given to me when he heard I was giving this course. And I read through it. I, you know, I looked through some of this and used some of it in the, in the talk. Some of it came through other sources. But this is called A B- Biblical Walk Through the Mass by Edward Sri. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. This is a very short book, 150 pages or so but it really does a great job going through the Mass. So I highly recommend this. And then some of you already get it, but are you familiar with the Magnificat? Right? I highly recommend that too because it has the rubrics, it has the the readings of the day, the prayers, the propers, right? Those prayers that change weekly and then in Advent and Lent they change daily. Last time, too, did someone ask, I can't remember now, everything's kind of running and blending together. Were we talking about the triple cross? Yes. And we're asking, I know it says in the rubrics the priest is supposed to do it. And did I clarify if y'all are or not? We we're saying I looked that up, right? Because the rubrics themselves, and everyone does it. Now, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which goes hand in hand with the rubrics, does say everyone else does it. Number 134. So what you can do, and I've told you this, it's in there, but it's online too. The Vatican has the general instruction of the Roman Missal on their website. Interestingly enough, it's from 2003, I believe, and I don't think it was updated after 2010 or 2011 when the new translation came out. And there's some changes. They're very small, but some can be kind of significant between the updated general instruction of the Roman Missal and the one from 03. But for the most part, everything you find online on the Vatican website is there. And like I said... If you find anything in there that we're not doing here, talk to me privately first, right? (laughs) And we will make it happen. I think I told you that story how the choir came up to me. This was my first year here, and in seminary we've been going through when the choir is supposed to start the communion chant, and it's actually when the priest consumes, not after the priest consumes. So it was brought to my attention, and we changed it. Now, last time I was also kind of giving the nuns a hard time, remember? Uh, All those, uh, now, the old nuns, not the new nuns, right? (laughs) 
We have uh, you know, a great convent nearby with the sisters, and I think you saw them if you watched the Astros Friday night. They were there. Well, these sisters are so gracious, they invited me to go with them tomorrow night. <laughs> so let's just go ahead and act like we didn't say anything bad about the sisters. She asked, did I accept the invitation? Of course I did. So you might see me on TV tomorrow night, dressed as a priest, so. Please remind them that I told them that their convent belongs to our parish. The convent is in our parish, so okay. <laughs> Liturgy of the Eucharist. How can we do this in about 30 minutes? All right, pretty quick. We'll go through and I'll highlight some important parts and then some things maybe you're not quite used to or you see done here and you might wonder why it's done here. Great, my slide ran out of battery. <laughs> so the liturgy of the Eucharist has three main parts, essentially. It has the presentation of the gifts, the preparation of the altar, and the prayer of the offerings, part one. Part two is the Eucharistic prayer itself. Part three is the communion rite. Then you obviously have the concluding rites after that. Now, an important thing to remember about the Mass, and it's really drawn out in the liturgy of the Eucharist, is it's a sacrifice. We say the Mass is a living sacrifice. It brings about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, a real sacrifice that's brought back to this moment in time in an unbloody way. That's why it's the altar, right? That's why it's an altar, because it's a sacrifice. Remember Christ died for our sins? The sisters, yes. Presentation of the gifts. Now, this is actually an ancient ritual. St. Justin Martyr, I referenced him in the first talk I gave. In 155, he wrote what was called the First Apology. 155 AD. And what he's doing is defending the faith to all these people of the Roman Empire who were saying all these bad things about Christianity. And what he says in there is, Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. He takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks. Thank Eucharist, right? That's what to give thanks means, Eucharist in Greek. That we have been judged worthy of these gifts. We also see this in what's called a very, I mean, it's in a, very, a very important document called the Apostolic Tradition of Hippolytus. That's 3rd century. 215 AD is when that was essentially written. We're already seeing these elements of the Mass taking form and taking shape. Now the gifts, the gifts that are brought forward, bread and wine. And I know some of you, I see some of you here, you brought up these gifts at Mass. Who's brought gifts up before at Mass here? Well, a lot of people, right? <laughs> the faithful. And that's who it's supposed to be, from the faithful, from the work of the people. Bread was an everyday thing. The Israelites was the most, for the Israelites, it was the most basic form of sustenance. To give that up, to give bread up, was a personal sacrifice. And it's a sign, obviously, of sacrificing yourself for God. For the Israelites, wine. Wine was an essential part of the meal as well. Now, in Scripture, you see in the Old Testament, the first fruits given as tied to the temple included wine. And wine was also poured out as a libation, we hear, a sign of sacrifice. Now, for us, as people, as the families, and these people who bring the gifts forward, it's representing our sacrifice 
for the Lord. And that's why also we collect money during that time, right? Maybe wine and bread don't make so much sense of a sacrifice, but maybe money does a little bit. And did you know Catholics are some of the worst givers out of all uh, you know, Christian traditions? Did you know that? Yeah, of course. We all kind of know that. You've heard me say, you heard me say it two weeks ago. No, it's an offering, right? And you know the words, blessed are you, Lord God. It, listen to these words again. It's talking about taking from what we've made, help from God, but what we've made as an offering to God. That's why this is called the offertory. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received those wine we offer you. Fruit of the vine and work of human hands, it will become our spiritual drink. What's interesting is at this part, probably out of everything we have at Mass, right? Even the patent, the bowl, the patent means plate in Latin, but we have bowl looking plates. The saborium means bowl, saborium means bowl in Latin, and that's what we reserve the host in, the consecrated host. But those bowl things without a cover really are technically patents, which means plate. That patent is gold plated, right? Even the bread it's holding, right? It's more valuable than the bread it's holding. Probably the least valuable thing of everything we use in Mass is that bread and that not-so-great wine, right? (laughs) But the words of consecration, which we'll talk about, those become priceless. The most valuable thing by far of anything in that church, the bread and wine at consecration. Now, one thing you see, this is where we start to see some of the quiet prayers. You see where the priest gets, or the deacon gets the little cruet of water, and you see him mix it in there. Now, in ancient, ancient tradition, they would always kind of mix water with, with wine, kind of uh, not make it as potent. Um, but what the priest says, or the deacon at this moment, when he pours that drop of, wa- of water into the wine, it's a quiet prayer. By the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Right there, there's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful language about being completely absorbed into Christ. When we receive the Eucharist, we're becoming Christ, right? Hoping His divinity takes over our humanity, right? Or at least leads us to heaven. We'll become more like Christ literally when we receive the Eucharist. Again, my clicker's not working tonight. I know it makes it about three sessions is what we got to know, right? Then, finally, the prayer over the offerings. This is what we heard yesterday. Look, we pray, O Lord, on the offerings we make to your majesty, that whatever is done by us in your service may be directed above all to your glory through Christ our Lord. And it changes every week, the prayer over the offerings, saying the prayer, essentially offering these these gifts to God. Now, what's interesting, in the Mass, we have three processions. What's the first procession? The entrance procession, good. What's the second procession? The offerings, right? And then what would you say is the third procession? Communion. Communion. Exactly, good job. And if you notice, each one of these prayers, sorry, each one of these processions is accompanied by a specific chant. That's why we have the entrance antiphon. I talked about it in the first or second week. 
There's actually an offertory chant that you find in the Graduale Romanum. And then you have a communion hymn, right, or communion chant, communion antiphon. So these things that are taken straight from Scripture, the choir, cantor, singing, accompany the procession. And then after each procession, there's a specific prayer, right after the entrance procession. Then the entrance antiphon, there's the collect. And then at the offertory, the presentation of the gifts, there's a chant. And then there's the prayer over the offerings. And then finally, communion, right? There's the communion where all of y'all process down the center aisle to a chant. And then there's the prayer after communion. I was talking to a liturgist the other day, and he kind of drew that to my attention. And it's interesting. It's an ancient... Uh, it's an ancient development, an organic development of the liturgy. Um, so you can see how things just come together over time. What we've inherited is a 2,000-year-old tradition that's come together. Right? This organic development is something you hear quite commonly. So we're going fast now, right? <laughs> Eucharistic prayer. Here we're getting into essentially the most important part of Mass. There's the preface dialogue. Now this is actually part of the Eucharistic prayer. They would say the Eucharistic prayer starts from the preface dialogue all the way to the great amen. And then there's different parts of the Eucharistic prayer. You can give a whole class probably on this Eucharistic prayer part, right? Um, Now this part, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and just. This dates back to the 3rd century. It's reported in that document I told you about by Hippolytus, the apostolic tradition. Then we have the preface. The preface, as you notice, if you notice, it's the priest talking to God. The priest leading the people in prayer. So you're with the priest, but the priest is the one leading the prayer. There was a story back in the day about one of these quiet prayers when the Mass might have been a low Mass, and the priest was saying his prayers, and someone said, Father, I can't hear what you're saying. And the priest said, I'm not talking to you. (laughs) Now the preface is written like a psalm. If you look through the Psalms, the preface is written like a psalm. It recounts God's marvelous deeds. Now this right here is the preface one of Advent. It talks about the two comings of Christ. This is what we say, we'll hear in a month or so, right? Now I don't know if you can read that, but you can see as Margaret Schuler asked me a couple weeks ago, are there notes for the priest to sing or are we just making it up? No, but sometimes we miss notes, right? And you can see these notes are right here. So every place you go, this is the tone, essentially, for the prefaces. Now this preface, think about a psalm. It's going to sound a lot like a psalm. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. You start going through this recounting history right here. For He assumed at His first coming the lowliness of human flesh, and so fulfilled the design you formed long ago and opened for us the way to eternal salvation, that when He comes again in glory and majesty and all is at last made manifest, we who watch for that day may inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. 
And so with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, and with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory, as without end we acclaim. Then we go in to the Sanctus. The Sanctus, it's the song of the angels. It comes from Revelation 4.8. We hear in Revelation 4.8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were covered with eyes inside and out. Day and night they do not stop exclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So that part's taken directly from Scripture. Then we get into what a lot of people call the Eucharistic prayer. And actually, if you open the, the, the missile right here, it'll say the Eucharistic prayer. Technically, it's called the anaphora, this part. Now, the anaphora from Greek means carrying back. It's bringing the victim to the altar. So it's really what's bringing that sacrifice into real time. That sacrifice of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago is becoming present in our midst in some obviously miraculous, mysterious way. For 1,500 years or so, there was only one anaphora in the West. Now there are nine. Now, the one that you hear me say most of the time on Sunday was that anaphora, the Roman canon, that was said for 1,500 years or so. It wasn't until Vatican II that they gave all these other options. Now, what's interesting, if you look at Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Liturgy, it doesn't call, doesn't say anything about changing the Eucharistic prayers. It was when the committees were getting together, it's called the Concilium, the implementation of Vatican II, that they started kind of really debating this. There was debate before. The church said nothing about it. It was the implementation. The church in these councils, this Concilium, talked about changing it. So what they did to kind of appease everyone was to keep the Roman canon and then to add these other ones. Now, basically, there f- well, I say there are nine, but there are four main ones. There are two Eucharistic prayers for reconciliation that I've actually never said as a priest. I hear they're nice. And then there are three Eucharistic prayers for, for children, which I've never said, and I don't even know if they're nice. Uh, they're in the back of the missile. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Uh, But the four, the four you'll normally hear, and the ones I tend to use, one on Sundays, Eucharistic Prayer 1, the Roman Canon, the one that was there for 1,500 years, and then at daily Mass, I'll use Eucharistic Prayer 2. That's what people know as the short one, right? (laughs) That's what I think most prayers, you can go, you can actually see the old sacramentaries is what they were called, that had, uh, that was before the translation change. And you can go to some of these old sacristies and see the, it's like the Roman Missal, essentially. And Eucharistic Prayer 2, the tab for that will be torn off. It's going to be all messed up and everything. If you go to Eucharistic Prayer 1, that, those pages are crisp, right? That's a, priests just didn't use it, which was sad, right? That's what the church never really intended to happen, but it did happen. The church gave options. By the way, ritual, I think, should have very, very, very limited options. It's a ritual right? I had a funeral today and I talked about, I preached on this in my homily. Ritual brings order to chaos. Could anything be more chaotic than death, right? 
And so ritual, when you have the funeral mass and it's what you're used to and there are all these options, it's bringing order in the chaos and the chaotic times of our lives. And then mass, which is dealing with the chaos of the world and how Jesus brought order to the ultimate question of death. I'm a big fan of ritual. And it's, psychologists will tell you, especially after COVID-19, there are articles, you can look them up. They talk about how important ritual is for us in times of chaos. COVID-19 threw everyone for a loop. People were seeking rituals in those moments. Anyways, that's my little tangent on ritual for you. Eucharistic prayer two, the short one. It actually comes from that apostolic tradition. 215 AD, Hippolytus was giving what they think was a summary of what was going on at Mass. The council, or I guess the concilium, the implementation, decided to use that as the basis for Eucharistic prayer too. Very, very, very short. That's why people think it probably was just a summary. Then you have Eucharistic Prayer 3, which I used. Was anyone at 7.30 a.m. Mass on Sunday yesterday? Y'all were over there? I used Eucharistic Prayer 3 yesterday on Sunday. Sunday kind, of a, kind of a dull crowd at 7.30 a.m., you know? <laughs> now, one thing that's nice about the Roman canon, though, right, it brings in those moments of silence, right? When we pray for servants, right? The first one's for the living, and there's this moment of, uh, for God's servants, so there's this moment of pause. And then we pray for the faithful departed also, right at the end after consecration. And those moments of silence are built in, and it's beautiful. Right? When it's a whole church just silent at that moment, it really is beautiful. Eucharistic prayer three, it, was, it followed an Antiochian structure. Eastern, Eastern church, right? Eucharistic prayer four was Eastern as well. It was an import, but they changed some of the things. It was the Eucharistic prayer and preface of St. Basil the Great. So they did kind of come from somewhere, but for the most part, they were kind of made up as well. There's a story around Rome that goes around how Eucharistic prayer too, uh, Lord, you're the source of all holiness. Uh, you know, it talks about the dewfall part. There was rumor going around that it was composed on a napkin at a restaurant in Rome uh, right after the council. Uh, but parts of it do come from the apostolic tradition. But that's always kind of fun to see. You might hear that, especially people who hate Eucharistic prayer too, uh, because they just really want the canon. Now, the church called for it, or the church implemented it. It's in the Roman Missal, so they're not wrong, right? They're not wrong. You can use any of those. They are the church, what the church has for us. Now, in this part, the anaphora, obviously the, the most important part of the words of consecration, right? Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. That moment, and if you want to know exactly when, the church has said when the priest says the words, this is my body. This is the chalice of my blood. At that moment, Jesus becomes present. Does any, well, some of you will know. Transubstantiation, right? That's the famous like, word we use as Catholics where the substance changes, where the accidents remain. That's Aristotelian philosophy, metaphysics. All you got to know is what looks like bread and wine literally becomes Jesus at that moment. Um, 
Sometimes this is a stupid joke, a philosopher joke maybe. So the accidents are the things that make it look like bread and wine, where the essence of it, the substance of it changes. So you can, when you have chalices that are filled to the brim at, let's say, an ordination mass or something, and there's a lot left over, then the ministers of Holy Communion have to consume you know, Jesus in the form of wine, but it still has all the accidents of wine. So you could say some of them get accidentally drunk at Mass. <laughs> Stupid joke, I know. And then as you go through the Eucharistic prayer, we hit various parts called the anamnesis, which is the memorial sacrifice. It's kind of the memory of it, the living sacrifice. It's the parts that come after you hear the intercessions. Right? We pray for the Pope. We pray for the dead. Um, which is interesting, as some would say in the intercessions, I was talking to Deacon John about this the other day, as I enter in and get into this, and you see what the general instruction the Roman Missal says and talking to a liturgist, he says in the intercessions that we say at the end of the liturgy of the word, the liturgist says, we really shouldn't pray for the Pope, we pray for the universal church, but not specifically the Pope, because the Pope's included in the Eucharistic prayer. And then we also pray for the dead in the Eucharistic prayer. So the last intercession of the prayer of the faithful should be for the local needs of the community. And that's where we put in there for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life, especially from our parish. Wouldn't that be great as a side note, right? To build a culture of vocations here. Um, I know I'd play a lot more golf if we had more priests. So it's God's, it's, it's my path to salvation is what you could say. We're making good time here. It is already 7.30 or so, but we're making great time. Again, I'd love to open this up to as many questions as possible as we finish this, and you can ask anything. Then we get to the communion rite. The Our Father. No holding hands. What's kind of funny today at Mass, you know, this was on my mind. I said the 5.30 p.m. Mass, and I told people at the end of Mass, you know, I'm giving this lecture. You're invited, invited to come. And I noticed some of you are extending your hands like this, and I explained, you know, it's really just, it's just the priest who's supposed to do that, because he's standing in the, in the place of Christ, right? And so at the end of Mass, I said, the Lord be with you, and everyone goes, and with your spirit. <laughs> so, I think it takes six times or so for it to sink in. All right, so what's kind of interesting with the Our Father, I always, when you have Protestants in here for weddings and funerals, uh, that's kind of the time it mainly happens. You always hear that doxology, you know, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Protestants will always add, like, say that at the end, but we don't say it. We do say it, right? Yeah. But it's after the, what we call the embolism. Now, why that happened, it's interesting. The earliest manuscripts of the New Testament don't have that doxology added. You know, doxology, doxa, is Greek. For glory, that was the Latin translation from the Greek. So doxology means a glory. When you hear a glory, that's a doxology. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. So you think as the Christians started developing a doxology and saying it, then some of the early manuscript writers, it was put in as maybe like a commentary or something, then it was added in. But if you look at Protestant Bibles today, it's actually in the comment section. Some have actually started taking that out. 
but it's funny as they will still say it. But again, in Vatican II, they added it in after the embolism. The embolism is that part that goes right after the Our Father that the priest says. It means an interpolation, kind of like a carrying through of, what that, uh, of that part before the doxology. The sign of peace. This is an ancient practice. Justin Martyr, in 155, in his first apology, talks about the sign of peace. Even then, it is technically optional. The rubrics say, then if appropriate, the deacon or the priest adds, let us offer each other the sign of peace. So it is optional. And then it doesn't even say which sign of peace is. Is it a shaking of the hand? Is it a bow? Is it a nod? Is it a peace sign? I mean, what is it? It doesn't say, right? Um, now, as, as you notice, since COVID-19, right, Cardinal Donardo said, you know, we're just going to omit the sign of peace for now. Then, um, I don't know if he explicitly said it, but it's come back at some churches. Here we haven't brought it back yet. The first weekend we're able to kind of do it, I did it, and I, people told me after Mass, it was kind of weird and bizarre feeling it. I just interesting. I'm just interested. How many of you would like to see the sign of peace come back at Mass? How many don't want to see it? About 50-50. How many don't care? <laughs> yeah. Either way, right? Now, here's what's interesting. This was addressed. It was brought up. Pope Benedict XVI wrote about it in a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy. It's an awesome, awesome, awesome work on the liturgy. And he wrote it when he was just, you know, Joseph Ratzinger, before he became Pope. And he brought it up then that it's probably in the new right, misplaced a little bit. In 2008, when he was Pope, it was addressed by the Congregation for Divine Worship, the CDW. And then Francis also circulated it as well. The question was, it probably makes more, it's disruptive where it is now. Right? And then it's really disruptive because you know, what I see people doing is the Agnus Day is starting, right? And then there's this part where the priest breaks the host. And those are really important parts of the Mass, but everyone's still like doing that and everything. Um, so what, it said, what they said, they didn't want to change the structure of the Mass. They thought that would create probably more problems and you kind of open up a can of worms. What Ratzinger said was it's probably better suited to be right before the presentation of the gifts, right? Based on that scripture of, you know, if you have a problem with your brother, settle it before you bring your gift to the altar, right? So it does kind of make sense there, and it'd be a natural place to put it. Um, but they didn't want to, want to change the structure. So what um, the USCCB said, or it might have been the Vatican, actually, they came out and said the abuses need to stop, especially there's no song at the sign of peace, other than what would be the Agnus Dei that comes in, right? There's no movement. There's no walking around. You see that at some churches. I was Googling images for this, and, uh, like, here's a guy waving, you know? Uh, and this was, like, one of the best ones I could find. You see some where everyone's walking around. That is an abuse of the liturgy. It really is a sign of peace that extends from the altar to everyone else, right? Christ is present. So it's Christ's peace extended to everyone. It really should be like turn to your neighbor and shake their hand, shake their hand to the person around you, you know, about five seconds. But when the music starts, it really should be done by then. Also, the priest, it was instructed, the priest should not go from the sanctuary 
down to the crowd, right? Sometimes you see that as well. And everyone's like, oh, Father is so great. Father's abusing the liturgy. Um, so, Agnew Stay. It's that him, right? Um, does anyone remember where this picture comes from, by the way? I talked about it in week two. Altarpiece, and oh, I know he knows back there. He raised his hand. It's in Ghent, right? This Ghent altarpiece. If you ever go to Belgium, right, they have great beer and great art. And this is the Ghent altarpiece. And you see the lamb, right? Agnus means lamb. Day means of God. And Christ is the lamb of God. This part two, so this is the breaking of the host, right? You hear about breaking of the bread in the Acts of the Apostles. It's one of the four things, Acts 2.42. I write about it probably in about four times a year in the bulletin letter. I think it should be, it's the paradigm, the blueprint of how every parish should work. I'm going to mix up the order. But it says the early Christian community, to keep the living memory of Jesus alive, they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, the communal life, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Breaking of the bread was a reference to the Eucharist. So that part where the priest breaks the bread is an important scriptural part. And then there's this co-mingling. You see the priest up there, and he takes a piece of the host and puts it in the wine. You've seen that before? What the priest says at that moment is, May this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to, the, to us who receive it. Now, this is an ancient practice. In ancient Rome, when it was the Pope, and they had his, you know, he would consecrate host, and they'd break parts of the host, and they'd bring that host around Rome to all the churches, and they'd put that piece of the host that the Pope consecrated into the chalice, into the cup, into the wine for all the local communities. It's also a symbol. It represents Christ's body and blood that were separated at death, and they're reunited at his resurrection. We're flying. This is great. Agnew stay. There's the priest, you know, putting the host in there. Now the communion rite. I was talking about this procession. And what we've done here is I why everyone, I want everyone walking essentially down the center aisle. Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, again in spirit of the liturgy, wrote a great way to spiritualize the procession. It represents when you leave your seat, it represents you leaving everything behind and going to Christ and following Him and receiving Him, then you go back to your seat and you're bringing Christ to the world. Right? What a powerful thing to do. If you can think about that every time you're going down the aisle. And the center aisle means everyone comes down. Now, in different parts of the world, um, it's really America, maybe Germany too, I think I've said this, where the communion line, it's like a line, right? It's pretty organized. It's chaos in other parts of the world. And it's kind of nice. Uh, and, you know, South America and Italy for sure, right? Everyone just gets up. You're like, what? Like when you first get over there, your American mentality is like, what is this? This is ridiculous. But it is kind of nice because, you know, you don't have to get up right away. Like a lot of Italians don't receive communion at Mass, whether for whatever reason, you don't know. Um, might be they don't feel worthy at that moment. Might have been they broke the fast. Might have, for whatever reason, because you don't have to receive communion. Right? Your Sunday obligation, anyways, is to just be at Mass. You're not obliged to receive communion. You're obliged to receive communion once a year, and preferably in the Easter season. 
Again, talking about the chant, right? We have the communion antiphon that's going as you process down. And when the, when the chant's done, when the antiphon's done, then we go into a communion hymn. Now, what's interesting is, right, to receive on the tongue or in the hand. Now, the bishops have affirmed that either way is fine, but it really is a new thing. It's called, it's an indult. It's been allowed to happen. But the norm is to receive on the tongue, which is kind of interesting, right? Um, a lot of people, I'm not going to tell you which way to do it, but the norm in Catholicism is on the tongue. Um, what would be ideal is if people come and actually receive reverently, right? I think you could receive irreverently on the tongue, even though I think the tongue personally is probably a just all things being equal, a more reverent way of receiving because you're not touching the host, right? The priest has his consecrated hands, um, that's, and it was the tradition of the church for a long, long, long time. That was the norm. But you're not doing anything wrong if you receive on the hand. I just ask that people, when they receive in the hand, receive reverently, right? And also, like any little particle on your hand is Jesus. Um, the worst, I mean, either way, you just want people to receive reverently. This brings up something, too, that people have brought up. If you notice, we don't have very many extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. Have you all noticed that? Now, this is what's going to blow some people's minds. And the Vatican has addressed this. I think John Paul II even said he lamented it. The abuse of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. It's only out of necessity if if Mass is to be extraordinarily prolonged, excessively prolonged. That's like 30 minutes because you have a church of 2,000 people and you have one priest. Right? That's what it's supposed to be. But now EMs have become this ministry that priests have made. And it's not a bad thing to want to be an EM, right? But it really is proper to the priest. We call extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. It's out of the ordinary. It's the priest and the deacon who are the ordinary ministers of Holy Communion. And it's kind of proper to, to our position to be doing it, right? Um, and it was only out of necessity. So it's been one of these abuses. And you know, we have all these issues today of people not even knowing that the church teaches that the Eucharist is literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I think all of this has contributed to it, this lack of reverence towards the Eucharist. I mean, I can go on and on, but I experience it every day. I see this lack of reverence for the Eucharist. And you know, for someone who's given their life for the Eucharist, I'm not you know, condemning anyone but I just recognize the issue that there's this lack of reverence for the Eucharist. And I, there's no doubt in my mind that that kind of contributed to that. But if you're an EM, you didn't do anything wrong, right? Don't think you did anything wrong, too. <laughs> Concluding rites. Gosh, this is great. <laughs> Concluding rites. There's me right at my chair, the priest, the prayer after communion. And then there's the blessing, and then the dismissal. And the traditional form of the dismissal is itemisa est. Interesting, right? Go. It is sent. The congregation is sent. That's where we get the word mass. Because we go to the church, receive Jesus, and we're sent forward to bring Jesus to the world. Interesting, that's where the name comes from. Now, I'm going back to this. I usually started every talk like this, but remember Pope Francis, 
Very, very, very important line. Traditionis custodis. In July, he came out with this. In common with Benedict XVI, I deplore the fact that in many places the prescriptions of the new missal are not observed in celebration, but indeed come to be interpreted as an authorization for or even a requirement of creativity, which leads to almost unbearable distortions. I ask you to be vigilant in ensuring that every liturgy be celebrated with decorum and fidelity to the liturgical books promulgated after Vatican Council II, without the eccentricities that can easily degenerate into abuses. Seminarians and new priests should be formed in the faithful observance of the prescriptions of the Missal and liturgical books, in which is reflected the liturgical reform willed by Vatican Council II. Lex orande, lex credendi, kind of the law of prayer, the way we worship affects the way we believe. And with all this craziness that has ensued, and it is crazy to imagine all this stuff, it was not what the council intended. And we have all these issues in the Catholic world, and it's not all back to the liturgy, but a lot has come from the liturgy. And as the pastor here, and I'm learning about this more and more every day as well, and the more I can enter into this too, and I've experienced a change in my own priesthood, the more reverent, the more we can enter into the mystery of the Mass, the more it will affect us, right? But we have to remember as well, the liturgy affects the way we live as Christians. If we're all concentrated on the liturgy and we're not living Christian lives, if we're not being faithful Christians, if we're not laying down our lives for others, if we're not trying to evangelize and bring people closer to Christ, then it's failing as well, right? So the two go together. Lex orande, lex credendi, lex vivendi. It means the law of worship affects the law of belief, which affects the law of the way we live, essentially. Essentially, it's what that means. Well, that's it. So any questions? Way back there. If one of us observes a, uh, another parish, not this one, uh, doing something that is out of conformity with the rubrics, what do you think is an appropriate amount of time for that pastor or that musical group to go about conforming their actions to what the church expects of us, knowing that probably something the parish has done forever and maybe for lack of formation of every Right. Yeah. So um, he asked, what if you go to another parish and you see that they don't really follow? You, know, you, you look at the germ, you look at the rubrics, and you're like, well, they're not really following that. How much time should we give them to change, or what are we supposed to do? That's a great question. From your end, the ideal would probably be, you know, talk to, uh, you can email the pastor, but we always know, unfortunately, Father knows best, Right. Um, so they probably won't change. Um, not to say that, I mean, it's worth trying, right? That's scripture too. You know, bring your problem to the person first. Um, I wish, I wish, I wish that the diocese uh, kind of enforced it more. I should talk to some other priests in the diocese who are higher up about that. But I mean, I'm taking this seriously because the reason why the Trentine Latin Mass, the TLM, the extraordinary form. One of the reasons it really took off was because there was reverence built in it and priests were celebrating it with such fidelity and it had this mystique and mysteriousness to it in which you, when, you, when you do it and when you see it, it's like this is serious, this is important. 
And it is important. The Mass is important. And we're used to seeing so many abuses. Like, there's some stuff you go to Mass, and it's like, I mean, if this is the most important thing y'all do, and you do it like this, why would I be Christian? Why would I be Catholic? Right? If that was the way the liturgy went, this goofiness, I don't know, think about whatever you want to think about. But if I'm, like, if I'm asking these important questions about life, and I'm thinking, I need to investigate if God is real. And then when I die, I'm asking these questions about death. What happens after I die? And, you know, Catholicism has been around forever, 2,000 years. But it has. Like, there's something to Catholicism that's absolutely amazing has staying power. And you want to go check out Catholicism and see what it has to say about death and about life? And you go to Mass and it's goofiness? Well, I'd be like, no, that's not it then, you know? So that was why the TLM, traditional Latin Mass, one of the main reasons it took off. And then, there were, you know, Pope Francis, probably right, you know? I mean, there were issues coming from some people in that community. Not all TLM lovers, no doubt. But some people were getting divisive, denying Vatican II, so one of the reasons Pope Francis came out with this motu proprio was to kind of kind of squash that resistance to Vatican II, but at the same time, I think the TLM did a great, great, great thing for the Novus Ordo, right? That was mutual enrichment, what Pope Benedict XVI talked about. So back to your question, I really, for me, I wish it was enforced more, but, you know, with the church, I think Cardinal DiNardo knows more than most, it takes time for things to develop. And so in the seminary and young priest, if we're being trained and, and informed, then it, you know, it'll take time, but it will be enforced. So that might be the best bet we have. Um, I don't expect some. And some of the older priests, too, God bless them, they were trained that way, right? Like they, they, they weren't making stuff up. They just had bad formation. Some, not all of them. Some priests are going to listen to this and think I'm crazy. But I'll call them out. I would call any priest out and say, well, you're not following what the rubrics say. So, good question. I married a, a non-Catholic, he's a convert. So he takes things very literally, you know, what the church teaches. And he has a problem with He doesn't understand how, with the Eucharist, that we're not receiving the blood now, how is, is that? Because unless you eat my body and drink my blood. It's a good question. So it's concomitance is what's called the... Uh, it's the Council of Trent definition that when you receive the host, you're receiving body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus completely. So that's just official church teaching right there. So I'd say if he's a literalist, show him that church teaching. And it's more symbolic. Again, that's kind of an abuse. I don't think I've talked about that before. I think that's kind of been an abuse in America of everyone receiving from the chalice all the time. It was up. It was the, the, uh, the Vatican gave the bishops you know, the power to regulate how the chalice would be used. But from everything you read, it really was probably envisioned to be for special occasions, first communion masses, right? Ordination masses, things like that. Um, Yeah. And do you think we'll ever go back to that? Will we ever go back to that? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, After this, COVID-19, I think, I mean, besides special occasions... I think kids receiving their first communion, I think couples getting married, be good to receive probably from the chalice. But as far as everyone receiving, no, I think, it, I think the risk of uh, spillage is worse than like, because it's just the full, it's a more full symbol is what they say. Uh, but 
not for every mass. I think it's just chaos, and I get so nervous when I see people. Um, I think there, it's just, yes, it, there's good to it, no doubt, but I don't, I don't think the risk, uh, I don't think the reward outweighs the risk. Yeah, so the question is with the, like, especially First, first Communion kids, how disrespect or irreverently they received communion. Uh, and Monsignor Bill, Father Bill back in the day, right, before he became all big and mighty. Uh, <laughs> good priest, by the way. Monsignor Bill's great. Uh, record that part. <laughs> no, you're right, though. So I think I honestly think about that all the time, about preaching, about just... Uh, Reminders, because they have people have to hear it over and over and over again. Um, part of me, part, I just don't like breaking. I don't know. It's in my own. You're, you just kind of touched on a soft point, right? Or a, a, a point of conflict in my own mind. We need to do something to teach over and over and over again about receiving reverently. I agree with that. Does anyone read the bulletin? Yeah. yeah. Or in both, right? That and flock note. And Christmas, we'll make a big flock note push to get everyone on that, too. Well, I did that. I gave a homework on that very Sunday. And the very first person who came up to communion, you So you preach like, but yeah, it takes, I think, like, again, uh, there's a book I was reading uh, somewhat recently, and it takes about six times for people to hear something and for it to sink in, right? So I think that's an important part. I would love it, too, if it was a community thing, right? If our community was known for reverence at Mass. Another thing, too, is brought to my attention is um, at the end of Mass, something irreverent happening is people hanging around and talking, right? And so I'll probably talk about that this weekend. Then I'll have to say it five more weekends. Uh, but, yeah, you really shouldn't be talking and discussing. People are praying after Mass and saying an act of Thanksgiving after Mass. And so if people are talking... Um, I would encourage them to go outside and talk. Oh, well, yeah, definitely before Mass. So, and so that's one thing. I, I told that story about my mom, remember? Yeah, yeah my mom, she, uh, I just you know, reprimand her uh, for talking before Mass. So, yeah. Oh, of course. Is it permissive? If you accidentally drop a host, or this happened to me at Daily Mass last week. I don't know what was happening, but I actually was disturbing communion. And sometimes it might get stuck on your, on, you know, Jesus gets stuck on your thumb or something. And, it, and the host dropped, and I was like, no, slow motion. And, and the host fell on the floor. Um, yes, if you accidentally drop a host, and it does happen once. So, yeah, some people do it, and it's like, like it kills me when they're walking away, right, with the host. You can't do that because you know, too, right? Like Satanists will take host. Um, and then they'll do black masses with that. Or there was someone in Houston recently where someone was stealing host from churches and then doing like their own mass at home. 
So this happens. So that's where we're very, we're pretty vigilant about that, especially when it's us, just four of us up there. And we're really looking. You see us chase people down from time. And uh, at the Spanish Mass, the ushers actually stand there to watch. And at the Vatican, they'll do that as well, to have people just watch to make sure if people, a lot of times people up there, especially with the Holy Father, because what people were doing, what they received from the Pope, if, there was, if it was ever in the hand, they would take it as a memento. So that's where with the Pope, it's especially it's just you're receiving on the tongue, and that's like you're not stealing that. So you can receive, obviously, if the host falls. So people walk away, and they're irreverent. But one time I had a man who accidentally dropped the host, and he was in tears after Mass because of how much he believes in Jesus and the Eucharist and how important his Eucharistic faith is. So the way I look at it, right, like accidents will happen. You know, Jesus gave... Uh, his church to humans, you know, so we're going to, we need to minimize as much as possible our mistakes, but mistakes invariably happen. Good question. Father, would you say that there are father from Latin to English and Latin to Spanish different, right? Yeah, so the translation from uh, Latin to Spanish to Latin, uh, so again, Latin is the basic, is the, is the universal translation, is the universal language of the church, all the missiles are translated from the Latin. And in Spanish, uh, you know, we say caer, uh, which is to fall, right? Don't, Lord, don't let us fall into temptation. But the text, the actual text says, do not lead us to temptation. So we were speaking the other day. Uh, Pope Francis changed the Italian translation into do not let us fall. Kind of, This was several years ago. It caused a controversy, and people thought, that, oh, you can't do that in English. And I agree, don't change, you know, don't change the translation. Um, so it's all, again, it goes to its translation issue. And then translations are all interpretations. Um, but uh, we'll get, I have a little bit of time, so, yeah, either one. Yeah, will they ever bring back the communion rail? Here's one thing that would be very helpful. Okay, the communion rail was part of the Borman reforms, the counter-reformation, which people could actually, the thing was, you were getting closer to the altar. So the communion rail, and it showed this physical separation. I think the communion rail practically would be great because like we had people this past weekend who just go up into the sanctuary and they're walking around, sanctuary, sanctus, holy. I'm a big believer that we have to respect our holy things as humans, right? All religions have sacred space, right? And if you, for us, I don't know, I could get on a little tangent here about theological anthropology. Um, humans create sacred space so the divine can enter, right? All human beings are religious. And so all human beings, because they're looking up for the divine, to the divine for these answers about, you know, the deepest questions of life, create the sense, create sacred in regular space out of reverence for what they know is divine. They know God exists. Uh, the thing about us is God actually became man to meet us face to face and give himself to us. So our sacred space is the sanctuary. The church is sacred, but the sanctuary especially. So this irreverence for the sacred kills me because I know that it's just disrupting our reverence. And if we can't keep something sacred, the Mass won't make sense. So back to the communion rail, practically speaking, it creates this natural barrier, which is nice. Um, just shows that it's a sacred area. I also think it, efficient, efficiency-wise, 
Um, even if we had a communion rail and you could receive kneeling, standing, whatever you want, but I think it is a little bit faster if everyone just went to a spot and it was the priest yeah. doing this, yeah. you know? So I think that would be the ideal just for an efficiency because when you, and it, it is what it is, but when people come up and it's one at a time and it's the priest, uh, so yeah. Some churches have it. Some churches never got rid of it. You can go to St. Michael's, right? And they still have, I mean, it's still there. Here we were built after the council. It'd be kind of awkward to put one in there. I've looked at it. Um, but uh, if I were to build a new church, I'd put it there. But maybe you, I wouldn't necessarily start using it right away. I don't know. I would see how it goes. But I just think it, it, just, it just kind of makes sense to have. Again, going from an architectural standpoint, the Borman reforms, which were the counter-reformation, Right, had that there. He also, Charles Borromeo was the one who wanted the tabernacle behind the altar. So it was showed the centrality of the Eucharist because the Reformation was denying the, I mean, the Eucharist, right? And so all these things were important, and it's like we kind of lost it, right? The Mass after Vatican II, and it was not the council itself, but it, uh, it made the Mass more about us. Look how great we are, you know. And you see that reflected in the architecture. Look at these churches where it's like the altar is in the middle and it's everyone around the altar and it's like us looking at each other. No, I don't want to look at y'all. No offense, you know. We're talking about this. You know, I observe the incense all the time for some reason. But anyway, sometimes they'll go ahead and elevate once, sometimes twice, sometimes three times. And since that's all ritual, right? What's, what so he was talking about incense. How many times you do it? You see different things, different times. What uh, now? Actually, it was a notitia, so it was what the Congregation for Divine Worship clarified somewhat recently, last twenty years, I think. Um, could have been ninety-seven, so more than twenty years. But it talks about the swing on incense really should be a ductu swing. One swing is two. So you see me when I incense the cross as I go around the altar. It's three two swings, three double swings. That's what it says to do. That's what the church, and that's just traditionally what it was. Now for uh, the gifts, um, for when you incense, uh, the deacon incense the priest, the priest incenses the people, calls for three double swings. If you're incensing um, like a relic or a statue, like if we had a statue of Mary, uh, that'd be two swings, two double swings. And then it talks about single swings uh, when you go around the altar. So that, and that's in the general instruction of the Roman Missal. But the germ does not specify the double swing. The double swing was what it was before. And so that never really changed. And then it was clarified that that's the way it's supposed to be by the CDW. They, the Congregation for Divine Worship clarified that's what it's supposed to be. So again, if you see a priest doing that, you're like, well, he just didn't read the notitiae. But no one really does. So. Good question. So if you, if you drop, what happens? I would say let the priest pick up the host maybe and then the priest can consume it and then we'll if we have an altar server there or we'll go up as you've seen and the the, the spot should be purified um so i just say you know watch the spot and then we'll give you uh new jesus uh yeah but yeah i mean again the drops happen we haven't had you know what's interesting 
right when we got back from COVID and everyone's wearing masks, there was fumbling going on. We haven't, knock on wood, had one uh, drop toast at my masses in a while. Um, so, I mean, it's bound to happen. You know, don't freak out. Uh, yeah, but yeah, good question. Did that make sense? I, if you want to hold your spouse's hand, that's totally fine, right? I mean, um, I wouldn't, I mean, I would definitely discur, I would not, if it was here and was happening, I don't know how long it would take me to break it. Like, let's say I'm assigned to a new parish and they're going, I don't know, that's, that's how you can get shot too. Like, uh, people <laughs> love that. Uh, what the church says, and this is Ratzinger, is our communions in the Eucharist. So it's this false sense of communion that we're holding hands. Again, it's making it about us. Um, again, that'd be like if people are all holding hands, like my dad was saying he was once at a country parish, and he's there, uh, the Our Father, and someone just reaches and grabs his hand right there. And it, comes, it becomes awkward, right? It's like the person next to you, come on, hold my hand, and then you're like, you're a jerk for not holding my hand. And then you feel like, I'm a jerk for not holding their hand. Um, so yeah, I mean, if it's like your, your spouse, I mean, you can. Um, now, if we do like... <laughs> But if we want to be black and white as possible, no, you really shouldn't be doing that. No, that's not in there, yeah. Um, again, follow the deacon's hands, right? Well, again, the deacon's doing what he's supposed to do. And it's not there. Um, again, what happened was, I'd have to read through this a little bit more. It was a presidential prayer in the extraordinary form, the traditional Latin, or the Trinitine Latin rite. Sorry. Trinitine Latin Mass, traditional Latin Mass. It's been a long day, guys, sorry. TLM, traditional Latin Mass, the Trinitine Mass. Um, I'm pretty sure it was a presidential prayer that only the priest prayed. So that's why the priest's hands were like that. When they changed it to be a common prayer, communal prayer, they probably should have kept the priest's hands like that, so it's a holdover, I think. I mean, I have to ask a liturgist. There are also interesting things in the rubrics. I was going to print it out or put it on this slide to show you. There are things in there that tells the priest to face the people, which indicate that the priest is not facing the people. So it's this notion of ad orientum, which is facing the east towards, or to the, yeah, towards the east versus, uh, versus versus populum to the people, the way the, the priest is facing. Um, the Sacrosanctum Concilium did not call for the priest to face the people. Um, it's interesting, right? It didn't, you can look, read through Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's not there. It was in the implementation, and the general instruction says it's desirable, but the council didn't call for it. The council fathers didn't call for it. Um, Pope Benedict XVI, again, Spirit of the Liturgy, writes about it. He says a lot was lost. There was a cosmological significance. Facing the east, or at least liturgical east, is the rising sun. And Christ is, you know, the light of the world, the sun breaking the darkness. And when the priest elevates the host facing the east, and the priest is also leading the people in prayer, right? And so it's like, like think about we're all praying together, facing Christ, facing the east, and the priest is acting on behalf of the people, leading the people that way. So it makes more sense from a, a leading perspective. Um, Pope Benedict said that it was, uh, it's, it's been, you know, so 
people are so used to it now that it wouldn't be worth going at Orientum, facing the east. But that said, he said maybe a common ground for the time being is putting a crucifix on the altar to put the altar cross on the altar, and then everyone's facing Christ that way. So that's where you see an altar cross on our altar, right? So you can think we're all facing Christ. I'm facing Christ. You're facing Christ. So, yeah. Again, these are just kind of rubrical points. You can look it up or, I don't know, it depends where you look. Google can be a little uh, dicey, you know. So, yeah. Timing of the reading of the bells, very good. Um, so in what sense timing? I mean, it says, it calls to mind, so the epiclesis or epiclesis, depending on how you want to uh, pronounce that. So you hear it right at the beginning, where the priest puts his hands, right? He's praying to God to make these holy, calling down the Holy Spirit. So the bells, bells are calling to your attention that something was happening. I mean, they say in the old rite, when people weren't listening or didn't hear, it's like, oh, it ca- called to mind that, Jesus was made, made present. It shows the significance of the moment. And so it's after consecration at the el- each elevation, you hear the ringing of the bells. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Is there... A... It just seems like recently it's changed. That's what I want to ask if you're wondering. Um, how did it change? Is that it? There's an addition? Yeah, the epiclesis. Okay. Yeah, and so they just weren't doing it before, but that's the three traditional times you do it. So the first one you hear is when the priest calls down the Holy Spirit. And you'll see the priest... Yeah, that one's new, right? But that's like, if you're going to do bells, you should just do the bells when you're supposed to, right? So it'd be, it'd be those three. It's supposed to be three rings. I don't see any rubric that says three rings. Um, I'm sure it's there somewhere was the tradition. The three is always significant, right? Um, I don't know exactly, but yeah, you do three... Three times. Some, more than anything, I like consistency. Yeah, three times is generally what you know. I don't know of a rubric, though. Not in the new Mass. There's no, there's no rubric for that that I've seen. But, um, but it, so understanding the way, I mean, it was a tradition that's just been carried on. This happened to us in South America. My daughter's left-handed. Mm-hmm. So what she did, she put her right hand on top of her left hand so that way, that way she can reach with her left hand and put the host in. Sure. Does that make any difference because a priest sort of admonished her for doing it? Yeah. Does it make a difference on how you receive? I think, I mean, again, I'm not aware of, uh, I mean, it talks, you hear about, uh, I think, was it John Chrysostom? Was it John Chrysostom? Yeah. No. no. The Cyril of Jerusalem? Some old saint. Uh, talked about, you know, making a throne in your hand and, uh, talking about the left being on top, right on the bottom. But, you know, the world's predominantly right-handed, so it's just one of these ways where we discriminate against left-handed people. Uh, I think it's okay, um, right? It's, I think it's practical, right, as long as you're reverent and receiving. It makes sense because you you're less likely to fumble. Yeah, but there's nothing, again, that I'm aware of in there that says you have to receive that, that way. But you should be receiving like that, definitely. Another question? Clarification? I don't know. I think I did okay. Probably a couple things that maybe a little iffy, but it's the last time. I don't know how I'm going to clarify this. Right? Maybe I'll edit this one. I haven't edited the other ones. Uh, maybe I'll edit this one. Okay. Sometimes I'm looking on television, you know, 
and I have my mask already, but they ha they're saying a different mask. Saying a different mask based on what the... Sometimes there are options. So, so, so if you have a Magnificat and you're like, this is what it says for the day, um, there are, sometimes there are optional memorials. Uh, there some, I look sometimes, it's not there. It's just, you know, yeah, maybe, it's, maybe they're celebrating. They're very, they're very options. I'd like to know specifically where it's different. I've seen that before. Um, so the Magnificat might put in the optional memorial of the day, whereas the priest chooses to do kind of the mass of the day. So um, today there was no optional memorial. Uh, John of Capistrano, I think, was Saturday maybe. That was an optional memorial. And, you know, the priest either does that one or you can do a vote of mass. It's Saturday, you can do a vote of mass for Mary. Um, it's an option, but not in Advent. You can't do it in Advent or Christmas season or Lent or Easter season. So. Why don't we see a chalice veil anymore? That's a good question. Um, I was actually thinking about uh, getting one because <laughs> those vestments. Remember last year we, uh, we had the Christmas wish list and we ordered these vestments and we ordered them a while ago and then they were made. They're actually completed in September and they've been at a holding facility in Lexington, uh, Lexington Kentucky since September 29th. And I'm like calling UPS every day to get them to come. But you, what you would do, I say all that because you can get the chalice veil made from the same vestment material. Um, is it, it does, it's, again, it kind of went away. You can have it, but it's not obligatory. It's kind of nice looking if it's just that on the altar too. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Procession coming in, was that the old right? When you're, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and the new right, that's not there. Yeah, the only, the only thing you process in with are um, uh, the bread and the wine. Yeah. Anything else? Well, thank you very much, guys. It's been fun. It was a good little crowd tonight. Again, um, just as we all kind of enter into this, um, the Mass is the most important thing we do. It's sacred. It should be different. I think I told you that story how a friend brought a friend to our whole, uh, Holy Thursday Mass last year. He was not Catholic, not really religious, and he goes to Mass, Holy Thursday here, and said, my friend asked him, he goes, so what do you think? And he said, I don't know. I mean, that was just so different. That's exactly, right? It should be a little bit different. It's different what we're doing there. Um, and it's fun. It's, uh, you know, I've never been a pastor before. Um, I don't, we try and move forward and try and do liturgy as reverently as we can. Um, and it's the most important thing we do as a community. Uh, and we keep entering into it, right? I mean, there's so much more that I could say in this whole series. Um, yeah? You. was the people, the people who were so 
devoted to what they were doing and in such intense prayer. And everything was so quiet. It was so reverent. Yeah. So yeah, the, the reverence can convert people, right? So and that's what I tell people when they don't, you know, if they don't, I don't follow. I didn't feel like going to mass. Do I really need to go to mass? Your presence alone can have an impact on people. I mean, on impact on people that you don't realize. When it's a crowded church, so someone was visiting the other day, maybe two weeks ago, and like nine or eleven. It was one of the. It was when it was pretty dang full. And he asked him, is it always this crowded in here? And I'm like, yeah, it's been getting that way since COVID. And he was like, this is awesome. Um, do you all know who Avery Dulles is? So Cardinal Dulles, Jesuit. Uh, his, have you all heard of Dulles Airport in D.C.? That was his dad. He was a big government figure. Avery Dulles, WASP, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, converted to Catholicism. And brilliant mind. I mean, brilliant mind. And it was him seeing simple folk at Catholic, in Catholic churches. And he recognized something like there's something to them, and it helped his own conversion. Um, so, yeah, it can happen. Your reverence at Mass can convert people, no doubt. Last one. Okay, you mentioned over the weeks of what you would talk about next. Uh, why don't you talk about sacramentals and indulgences? Sacramentals and indulgences. We could talk about that. Might be one session. Maybe it'd be just a, set, a, talk, a talk series on just various themes of Catholicism. One of the things I was going to do in November, but I think I kind of need to rest. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to go like in a hole somewhere. Um, I'd like to have a talk, maybe the same talk, but on funerals. Right, November makes sense because it's the month of the dead. But to prepare for funerals, so many people who come. They have never done a funeral before, and they don't know how to prepare for their own or their parents, right? And it's pretty important, right, to, uh, to, to kind of, like, think about, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, you, I would think I could have a, uh, um, a funeral home director here as well to give a little bit of a presentation just on what happens, right? Like, what does the church say about cremation? What does the church say its preference on all this stuff? So I want to have a talk on that. Uh, maybe I'll do that in March in light of the resurrection, you know. But we will have the next big thing we will have, but it'll be a sacred music uh, concert. And it's going to be a requiem. Um, yeah, so requiem mass for the month of the dead. Um, so it's November 19th. It's a Friday night, and we'll have a reception after. So it's going to be beautiful. There's going to be a little orchestra there as well, I think. Um, it will be absolutely beautiful, and it's going to just show our... Um, sacred, music, sacred music tradition. So, guys, I would love to, I mean, always feel free. You know, you know where I live. <laughs> um, feel free to ask me anything, anytime. Because if I, if, you, if I haven't thought about it, or your questions help me think about things in all kinds of different angles, right? Again, I mean that, too. If there's some we're not doing, I mean, correctly, and there's not some good pastoral reason for it, uh, you know, call me out. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome. And we get to uh, grow, grow together, right? I'm still a relatively young pastor. So, well, I'll give you a final blessing before we depart for the evening, all right? The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.